You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. Alrighty, alrighty. Good morning, Calvary. How's everybody doing? You all hear me? All right. All right, so if you guys don't know, if you're looking up here and you're like, that's not Pastor Bob, who is this kid? My name is James, um, and I'm the youth director here at Calvary. And I've been given this amazing opportunity uh, to share the word with you guys today. But before we get into that, in the spirit of the new year, I have a confession. When I was in middle school, I used to do a bunch of terrible stuff, as I'm sure we all did. So one day, me and my friends, my amazing friends, were hanging outside of our class, waiting for our teacher to get back. And you know what happens. We got bored. We got bored. My friends, being the amazing influences, the great people that they were, decided that they had an idea to pass the time. They had an idea. We decided to play this game where we would take different items from someone's backpack. Rulers, scissors, tape, basically anything that you could find in an office depot was fair game. Whatever you could take out of someone's backpack without them noticing was a respectable move. So it came around to be my turn. And we have basically already taken everything out of this one girl's backpack. And she didn't notice a thing. So I decide that I'm going to take something out of the front pocket of her backpack. So I walk over. I start unzipping the backpack as slowly as humanly possible. And eventually, I was able to get it open. And I see it. I see the objective of my mission sitting right there. A clear $5 protractor. So I pick it up and I take it out of her backpack without her noticing. And I am in the clear. Now, just like that, I gained the utmost respect of my friends. But the problem was immediately after I took it out, the teacher came back and the kids started filing into the classroom. And of course, my friends, the amazing people that they were, decided to take everything that we took out of her backpack and pile it straight into my hands. So the girl turns around. She looks at me and she proceeds to yell, someone call security. This man right here stole all of my stuff. Which first of all, I knew the girl and I was pretty good friends with her at the time. So I was like, really, this is what we're doing. You're selling me out. Right? It's not like I just pretty much stole everything in your backpack, which I did. So eventually, the school security guard shows up. And mind you, I'm about like 50 pounds heavier than the guy. I'm like a foot taller than him. So I'm not sure what, how he's going to constrain me. But I just went with it. I went with the flow to get in as least amount of trouble as possible. So I get to the principal's office. And my English teacher told, tells my vice principle that I should be written up for a referral. Now one thing you have to understand is that in my household, 
if you brought home a referral, if you brought a referral in the door at my household, it was over. It was a prison sentence. That's it. My life was over, ladies and gentlemen, if I brought home a referral. I can say goodbye to everything that I love. So I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, that's it. I'm going to get this referral. I'm going to bring it home. They're going to lock me inside my room. I'm just going to go to school for the rest of my life. I'm going to still be living with my parents when I'm 40 years old. This is not going to turn out well. So the vice principal looks at me, and she says, James, you're a good kid. Why would you commit theft? Which, first of all, I was like, number one, who told you I was a good kid? <laughs> number two, why are you acting like I stole a car, right? It was just a $5 protractor, which both of these questions I thought were seemingly good questions at the time. In my mind, I didn't really do anything wrong. I just stole a protractor, a $5 protractor. All it even does is help you draw circles better. And the reality is, my friends, that so often we see our life through the exact same lens that I did when I stole that protractor. We try to make excuses, justify our actions, and we blame it on the culture that surrounds us just like I did in that moment. We have this superficial view of sin, discipline, and how we should be treated. We have thoughts like, if we worship a loving God, then why does he discipline his people? Why doesn't God just accept us for who we are and the mistakes that we make? Why can't he just brush it off like I wanted my vice principal to do in that moment? We become blinded by the culture we are surrounded by. We stray from the path that God has put us on, and we end up hurting the people that God wants us to be an example to. This has become a huge challenge for us, because for so many of us, we have trouble navigating our own walk with God as Christians, because we live in a world that is overinflated with sin. We become short-sighted in how we should be living. Well, today I want to talk about what happens what happens when we actually prioritize what matters most in our relationship with Christ and others? Specifically, we're going to uh, look at a section in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now, for those of you who are unaware, uh, the book of 1 Timothy is a letter that Paul wrote to Timothy to encourage and instruct Timothy in leading the church at Ephesus. Now, in chapter 1, Paul mostly focuses on doctrine. He explains how we should approach and share Scripture with others. Chapter 2 focuses on conduct. So we're going to look at the beginning of this section where he starts to focus on conduct, where Paul begins to outline how believers should conduct themselves within the body of Christ. So Paul begins this passage in verse 1, if you'll turn with me. He says, Therefore... I extort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
Now, there are two things that as a Christian we need to do in order to combat the culture. And the first is this, I need to prioritize everybody. I need to prioritize everybody. I want to begin this by looking at the nature of this command that Paul gives to Timothy. He uses this phrase, first of all, which signifies importance. So Paul, out of the gate, is trying to grab our attention in saying this. Now, to give you an example of this, how many of you have ever lived up north or you've driven up north and you see the church signage that people use? Just by a quick raise of hands. No one? No one? Here. Oh, a few. Well, here's a few examples. Here's one. Sin burn is prevented by sunscreen. Yeah, that's good. That's, that's, some, that's a good pun right there. Here's another one. Here's another one. Tweet others as you would like to be tweeted. That one's pretty culturally relevant today, oddly enough. Uh, but these signs are pretty ridiculous, right? But they serve their purpose in getting your attention. Similarly, Paul is telling us, before you do anything else, before you do anything else, remember what I'm about to tell you. And then he goes on and he explains that supplications prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks are for all. Following this instruction, he actually takes it one step further and says that we need to minister to kings and all who are in authority. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. I have to pray for those who don't share the same political views as me? I have to pray for the people who decide what my taxes are? That is crazy. That is absolutely ludicrous. Well, in Paul's time, this commandment was even more unthinkable. It was ridiculous within the context of the time in which it was written. And here's why. The book of 1 Timothy was written anywhere between 62 and 66 AD. During this time, Caesar Nero reigned over Rome. Now, for those of you who don't know, Caesar Nero basically begun the wave of one of the most brutal persecutions of the Christian faith. This guy was insane. He practically killed Christians for sport. So Paul's distinction to minister and pray for those in authority almost seems delusional. And yet this kind of compassion, this kind of compassion is the exact same compassion that Christ showed us on the cross. Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. He says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what does this mean? Well, it means two things. Number one, it means that we should reach those who are marginalized. We should reach those who are in need. Paul explains that God desires all men to be saved. Not just the people we like, not just our friends, not just the people who don't cause drama, not just our family. God desires that everyone should have the chance to hear and respond to the gospel. Number two, it means that we are called to forgive others just as Christ forgave us. And here's why, because a lack of forgiveness. A lack of forgiveness is the direct result of us not being able to recognize our own shortcomings. Because entitlement is always the root cause for bitterness. 
It's always the root cause. Now, to give you an example of this, how many of you guys have played this little game called Monopoly? Just by a raise, how many of you guys, yes, yes, you know. You know if you've ever played Monopoly, you know that this game tears families apart. This game ruins relationships. There is no remorse in Monopoly. So my family, of course, had this tradition that on Wednesday we would have game night and usually we would play Monopoly. Now this kind of Monopoly isn't the, the kind where you sit at the dining room table for four hours until your back starts to hurt and then you quit. This was a video game Monopoly. So we would all circle around the TV on the couch and we would go at it for hours upon hours. And as you can imagine, one night in particular, we went at it and it was almost 12 at night and we were still cranking out Monopoly. Eventually my dad decides to call it quits. He was like, I already have 20 hotels. I have all the properties. I basically won, right? Which he didn't win, he was just tired. But here's the catch. Here's the most pivotal part in the story. And this version of Monopoly. I don't know what the developers had against forgiveness or healthy relationships, but in this version of Monopoly, for whatever reason, you can give everything that you earned in the game to someone else. And if you're a parent, you know this. You know if your kid walks up to you and says, Mom, Dad, who's your favorite child? Of course you say, oh, I, sweetie, honey, I, I love you all equally in your different ways. But this, my friends, is where the truth is revealed. So my dad logs off, and right before he leaves, he decides to give every single thing to my older sister. Starting worse. So as you can imagine, I was infuriated because I worked so hard this whole time and it was rendered useless because he gave all of his stuff to my older sister. Well, me and my sister, we keep playing and it gets to the point where I have a couple of turns left and then I'm gonna lose. So I'm like, you know what? That's it, I've had enough. And mind you, this is a pre-Christian James, so I had a lot of unresolved rage uh, toward people for no reason, for no reason at all. So I walk over to the Xbox and I turn it off. And then I proceed to say, if I can't win, then no one can win. And then I proceed to let out one of the most maniacal laughs that a 10-year-old kid could produce. And my sister was rightfully so super upset because she just wanted the decency of me accepting defeat. But I was so caught up on the fact that I worked for what I have and that she didn't. And that, because of this, I thought that I was entitled to not let her win. So why am I telling you this story? Why am I telling you this? Because sometimes we become blinded like I was in that moment. We think that we're entitled to an apology, 
Because, right, we were the better person in this situation. We didn't do anything wrong. And that because of this, we think that withholding compassion and sympathy for someone is the answer. And this, my friends, is the kind of bitterness that will destroy relationships. If we are not careful, that pride will come along and ruin every single meaningful relationship that we have. So how do we combat this? Well, we recognize that Christ is the sole reason we are forgiven for our sins. And when we embrace this truth, instead of feeling entitled to an apology, we show compassion. We show sympathy and forgiveness to those in desperate need of a Savior. For those of you, uh, you might be thinking, uh, who have a family member or a friend or a coworker or a colleague, and they're in your mind right now. You might be saying, James, that's great. That's great. But you don't understand what this person did to me. You don't understand how much this person hurt me. And I will say this much. I know forgiveness is not easy. But we can't get rid of the turmoil that we have. We can't experience freedom until we take the first step in actively seeking forgiveness. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 through 24, in Jesus' most famous sermon, when speaking about reconciliation, he says this, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Jesus, he explains that as Christians, we need to come, before we come to our Heavenly Father, we need to make amends with those who are in contention with us. Now, for some of us, we might be saying, well, I, well, I was right. I was right. There is no reason why I should have to forgive someone who hurt me or my loved ones. And yet Jesus in verse 44 tells us, But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So why should we actively seek forgiveness? Why should we actively seek forgiveness? Because while we were still sinners, Christ forgave us. Well, Paul concludes this section in Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. He says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified and do time for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul concludes by making two distinctions, two distinctions of God's authority. And the first is this, that there is one God. The first distinction that Paul makes is that there is one singular God. Now something to take note of is that at this time, in which this was written, there was a large amount of pagan influence in Ephesus from Greek and Roman mythology. So this distinction alone would be challenging the majority of people living in Rome. 
The idea of monotheism was something that at this time was almost exclusively Jewish and Christian in nature. So when Paul explains that there is one God, he's creating a distinction from all the other pagan religions at that time. That word one in the phrase one God can be translated to this word absolute. It is the clarification that Paul is absolutely certain that there is one God. Now to give you an example of what this kind of certainty looks like. My little sister, when she was younger, she had this imaginary friend named, and I kid you not, broccoli, like the vegetable. It was named Broccoli. Now we knew this because one day we were driving home from a Wednesday night choir practice and she starts crying profusely. She starts crying like she's never cried before and we were all like, oh, what's wrong, what's wrong? What's going on? And she kept saying, Brock, Brock, Brock. And I'm thinking, this kid Brock did her dirty. And I'm like, let's go, Brock. But it turns out, lo and behold, we found out it was just her imaginary friend named Broccoli. So one day, my mom walks into the bathroom and it looks like an absolute bomb went off. There was toilet paper sprawled out all over the floor. There was paper towels all over the floor. There's soap on the walls. If you're a parent, I'm sure you've experienced something like this. So my mom sees this and she, she, she calls us all over, she lines us up. She's like, hey, I, I, I got a question for you. She's like, James, did you do this? I'm like, no, not this time, but she was like, Sarah, did you do this? And she's like, of course not, of course not. And then she gets to my sister. And my sister walks up. And with the utmost confidence, she says, I know who did it. And it wasn't any of us. It was broccoli. Which my mom was like, what do I even do at this point? You know, do I explain to her that her imaginary friend isn't real? That's just terrible. Or do I just roll with the punches and just not punish whoever actually did this? Now, the funny part about this whole story, if you go up to my sister at, to this day and you ask her, who did it, she still will not admit to it. But the point being is that my little sister, without a shadow of a doubt, thought that her imaginary friend named Broccoli made a mess of the bathroom. She was absolutely certain that this is what had occurred. There was not a doubt in her mind that Broccoli was the culprit. Now, unfortunately, this kind of certainty has become almost non-existent in today's culture. Let me give you an example. Most people, if you ask them if there are absolutes, they'll say things well, well, like, like, well, truth is relative. Truth is relative. There's, there's my truth that I got over here, then you got your truth over there. Truth is relative. There are no absolute truths. And the easiest response to this is that you just ask them if the fact that there are no absolute truths is an absolute truth in it of itself. And that, my friends, is guaranteed to cause some serious headaches. But the point being is that in today's culture, we're told that God is our science. We're told that there are multiple paths to heaven, 
and that spirituality is the key to understanding God instead of devotion. And yet Paul says with absolute certainty that there is only one God who you should put your faith in, only one God who you should trust. Well, moving on to the second distinction of authority that Paul makes. The second distinction that Paul makes is that there is one singular mediator. There is one mediator between God and man. Paul makes this claim that there is one God, which is already controversial. But on top of this claim, Paul takes it one step further. The Apostle Apostle Paul explains that not only is there one God, but in addition to this, there's only one way to have a relationship with God. There's one mediator, one arbiter for us, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. And if we actually look at the New Testament, Jesus confirms this himself. In John 14, verse 6, uh, he says this when answering Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Paul is explaining that with absolute certainty that there is only one way to achieve salvation, and that is through the mediator, Christ Jesus. Now, in our modern understanding of this, many of us would look at this and we would see this as problematic because you start to ask questions like, well, what about all the good people who practice other religions? What about all the good people who believe in God or all the people who haven't heard the gospel, right? We try to create these situations where we take God and we put God under the spotlight instead of ourselves. We'll say, if, if God is good, then why did this happen? If God is good, then why did that happen? And the reality is that we think that based on our own broken moral standards, that Christ serves as just an option. Instead, Paul is telling us that there is only one person who has lived a sinless life and gave himself as a ransom for all. There's only one person who lived up to that perfect standard, and that person is the mediator, Christ Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul puts it like this, just as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So what should be our response to this? What's the last point in your outline? It's that I need to prioritize God's instruction. I need to prioritize God's instruction. Instead of trying to justify our sin, we recognize our shortcomings and ask God for forgiveness. To backtrack a little bit to the story I told in the beginning, if you remember, I ended up in the vice principal's office for stealing a protractor. In that moment, I'm sitting there thinking, what is going to happen to me after I get this referral? As silly as it sounds now, I thought, man, that's it. It's over. When my mom sees that I got a referral, I won't have a life. I can say goodbye to my hobbies, my friends, and everything else that gave me joy in my life. 
And as I'm sitting there contemplating this, waiting to be written up, I see my English teacher walk into the office, walk over to the vice principal. And she pulls her aside for a moment, and then she comes back to me. She says, James, get your stuff. We're going to go back to class. And as we're walking up the stairs, she looks at me and she says, I got you out of the referral because you're a good kid. You're a smart kid. I didn't want this to be a stumbling block. And I remember I looked at her and I said, it was really not that big of a deal. It was just a protractor. And she looked at me dead in the eye. And I'll never forget this. She said, James, it's not about what you stole. You could have stole a piece of paper and it would have had the same impact. It was never about what you stole. It was about the principle. You broke the trust between you and the other person. And it was only in that moment where the seriousness of the situation started to make sense. Because I realized that it was never about what I stole. It was never about what I stole. It was about who I hurt. And my friends, what we fail to realize is that most of the time, that is us. We become so focused on justifying our own sin that we have forgotten the principle. We forgot that because of our sin, we have broken the connection between ourselves and God. For some of us, we let the culture determine how we would live our life. For some of us, we let the people around us determine how we live our life. For some of us, we just wanted to do it our own way. We get caught up in this lie that we don't need God's instruction in our lives. And we think, uh, if I just compromise here, if I just compromise there, if I just do it my way this one time, it won't hurt anyone. And the reality is that because God is rich in mercy, he sent his son, Jesus, to die for each and every one of those mistakes. So that in all of our sin, we would stand blameless before him. So instead of living our lives our own way, what do we do? Well, Solomon puts it this way in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. He says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. And I know this. I know that some of us are tired. Some of us are hearing this and we are looking at the new year. And instead of celebrating, instead of celebrating the new year, we are wishing that someone would just push the brakes. For some of us, this last year has been nothing but an obstacle in our faith. So instead, we're looking onward, wondering how we're going to make it through this next year because we need help. Instead, what do we do? 
Instead of living our life our own way, instead of listening to the people around us, instead of listening to the culture and allowing that to determine our decisions, we put our trust in Him. We surrender everything to Him because we understand that our God is faithful to provide. We understand that we put, when we put our trust in Him, He is faithful to provide. We understand that Christ isn't just an option. It's not just a supplement that we take when we need fixing. It's not just something that we do to make ourselves feel better, but rather that Christ is the only option. And when we embrace this truth, God begins to use you. God begins to use you to fix relationships that you never thought would be mended. God begins to use you to impact the kingdom for his will. And this is when we grow in our relationship with Christ and the people around us. When instead of trying to do things our own way, we give him our doubts, we give him our worries, we give him our struggles, our sickness, our pain, We give him everything that we have and we put our trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today and Lord, there are people in this room that need you. There are people in this room who are hurting, Lord, who are tired. Lord, we pray that you would just give us guidance, Lord that you would give us your instruction, that you would help us to see your will for our lives. Lord, we pray that you would help us to prioritize those in need, that we would look to you when we struggle with forgiveness, Lord, that you would help us forgive those who have hurt us. Lord, I pray that we would reach those who are in need, and that we would prioritize your instruction in our life, that we would surrender everything to you because we understand that you are faithful. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for everything that you have given us, and we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. Lord, it is in your mighty name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.